God is good, man. I love listening to my family worship the Lord. And, you know, that's what worship is. is It's an extension of who you already are. It's not something we do on Sundays. It's something we are as a people because of the um, just amazing grace of God. And so I'm obviously really blessed. Um, good morning, everybody. Excited to be in the book of Daniel with you. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be picking up in verse 15. As you make your way there in your, in your scriptures, I just want to take a moment and thank all of you for blessing uh, me and the staff for your love gifts that you gave over uh, the holidays. It just meant so much to us and me personally and my family. It's just uh, timely and uh, you're so generous, especially in a, in a very difficult year. We just wanted, my family wants to extend our thanks to you and our love for you and just love ministering the word of God to you, and it's just an honor to be with you. And so I want to continue to do that this morning to honor the Lord, but thank you very much. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 through 28 is where we are this morning. But before we re- dive into those verses, I want to quickly go over with you verses 1 through 14, quickly meaning a couple minutes, um, because we left off right in the middle of the chapter back in November, if you remember. And Basically, what we need to remember is, is the first several, um, uh, the first, well, uh, up until basically Daniel chapter 7, you have one vision chapter, which is Daniel chapter 2. There's a couple other spread out in there. But then when you get to chapter 7, from then on, it starts just being a bunch of visions that Daniel gets at various times, and they're not necessarily all in chronological order, and it gives the explanations. And so here in Daniel 7 is the beginning of the, really the vision chapters. And Daniel 7, the first 14 verses, which we went back over in November, um, basically are the vision that Daniel receives. And the last, fifth, the last several verses from 15 on are, is the interpretation of, those, of that vision. And so by way of quick review, the first 14 verses, if you're taking notes, chapter 7, verse 1 tells us the vision of Daniel chapter 7 happened while King Belshazzar was king. Now that's the last king of Babylon. We know that from chapter 5, if you've been with us. Uh, Daniel, uh, Belshazzar was the final king of Babylon who was conquered uh, there in chapter 5. And the vision that Daniel receives begins with the description here in chapter 7 of of four different beasts, four beasts. The first beast is described in verse 4. It was a lion that had wings, and the wings fell off, and it stood upright, and the lion was given the mind of a man. And then the second beast in verse 5 was that of a bear that was bigger on one side than another. Mind you, all these are kind of mutant animals here. And it was bigger on one side than the other. It was kind of lofted up on one side, and it had uh, flesh in its teeth. And the third verse, uh, I'm sorry, the third beast in verse 6 was a leopard with four wings and four heads. And the fourth beast in verse 7 and 8 was distinct from the others. It had iron teeth. It had ten horns. It had a little horn that came out of those ten horns and replaced three of the original horns. And uh, it, the horn had eyes of a man. So just a, a trippy vision. So these first eight versions were a description of these four various beasts. <coughs> Excuse me. Then in verses 9 and 10, it cuts to the heavens where we're viewing the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is described in all his glory. And he's seated in judgment and he opens the books. And then in verses 11 and 12, God kills the fourth beast and throws him into the fire where he is destroyed, not meaning ended, but he is thrown. And then in verses 13 and 14, one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and receives uh, the eternal kingdom where all nations, all peoples, and tribes will serve him forever and ever. So that's kind of the vision that Daniel has here. And so as he gets this vision... Mind you, Daniel has not seen a movie. There's no CGI going on. There's no, you know, beast that he's just tripping out. Like he sees these things and they are overwhelming his senses. And he is just undone. He struggles. You can imagine that what he's seen. He's seen uh, the beast and then in a vision he sees God. And then 
he sees the judgment and then the Son of Man receiving the kingdom. And so it's just overwhelming him. And you're going to find Daniel's overwhelmed a lot here. And he struggles to understand what God has just shown him. And that's where we pick up in verse 15 today. It says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. The word for anxious there is also translated uh, grieved and the word for alarmed is also translated terrified. He is grieved and he is terrified. He knows something is significant in these things. He don't, doesn't know what it is, but it is apocalyptic in his mind, right? And so Still being in that state, verse 16 says, And I approached one of those who stood there in this vision, and I asked him the truth concerning all this. Daniel wants to know what it all means. And so Daniel approaches one of these beings who is standing there, most likely angels. If you read ahead to chapter 8, verses 13 through 16, you find that it's, a, it's an angel helping Daniel. If you keep on going to chapter 9, verses 22 through 27, it's an angel who helps Daniel interpret. So most likely this is an angel he's speaking to who helps Daniel with the interpretation of these dreams. And so Daniel approaches them and asks understanding. And so it says in the rest of verse 16, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So Daniel has this confusing dream and, and is just left stumped and wants to know its meaning. How many of you have read the Bible and that's where you find yourself sometimes? You're not alone. Now, just a side note, one of the uh, very important things that we need to remember in reading Scripture is at the point that you're stumped, at the point you don't understand, don't just start guessing and have speculation and then go, oh, that must be true, and then making those applications to your life. That is where you get cults, that is where you get weird people, and that is where you get uh, very strange understandings, and we can get off. What we need to do is let the Scriptures interpret itself. Let the Scriptures interpret itself, okay? Sometimes we can read verses like we just did in verses 1 through 14, and, and we just stop, and we start guessing, and we go, oh, well, that means that, and we make these applications, and we just end up being weird. That's not what it is. It gets very dangerous. And so let the, the Scriptures interpret themselves. And when they do, then you ask, once you understand what it is saying, not what it's saying to you, what it is saying, then you ask, well, what's the implication of that? How does that apply to me? Because Daniel, God isn't speaking to me on this. He's speaking to Daniel about something. And what he's saying about that should apply to me. Now, there's teachings in the New Testament that are directed towards believers. That makes sense? So we've got to be able to discern that. But we ask questions, what's the truth about this and what do I do about it? Right? We don't need to guess at what the four beasts represent here because that could go anywhere. Just keep reading. Amen. Context. It tells us, and this is what happens here in Daniel. And there's a lot of key verses when you're dealing with end time stuff. Daniel being a key one, Matthew 24 being a key one, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation 17, Revelation 19, 20, 21. All these ones kind of all give you a big picture of what's going on here. But Daniel's given the meaning of what he saw in this vision. And so he says in verse 17, the angel says to Daniel, what does he say? These four great beasts are what? The four kings who shall rise out of the what? The earth from among the nations. And so guess what? The lion is a what? It's a king. The bear is what? It's a king. The leopard is a what? It's a king. And the mutant beast, which we find out in Revelation 13 is a mixture of all those, is a king. But they are also kingdoms. You can't separate a king from a kingdom. You find that later in verse 23. So whenever you see that, a king is not separated from his kingdom. Just as the Lord Jesus came preaching the what? The kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. Who is the kingdom? He's the kingdom. Right? And everything that he represents is part of that kingdom. So these four great beasts are four kings as well as their kingdoms. We know that Nebuchadnezzar uh, his vision in chapter 2 of the image made of various metals uh, represented kings and kingdoms. He had a vision of an image of a, of a metal man, and the metal man was made of the various pieces of, of metal, and those pieces 
represented kingdoms. The beasts here in chapter 7 are just another way of identifying that. It's important to know. It's just another way of saying the same thing, giving us a different perspective on this. Saying that all these kings and all these kingdoms are going to re- come down to a final king with a final kingdom, and, with a, and then the Lord comes and, and takes over that king, that, the, all the kingdoms. But we saw in Daniel chapter 2, instead of, instead of these kings and kingdoms being described by beasts, what do we see? We saw the metals. And we, so we saw a head of gold. We saw arms of chest of silver. We saw a center and legs of, of bronze or, or its midsection of bronze and, le- and legs of iron. And then feet and toes, ten toes, mixed with iron in clay. And those all had significance. We know that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in, of, of Babylon in, in chapter 2, 38 through 40, you are the head of gold. So we don't need to guess about this. Babylon's the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar's the head of gold. And he says, and another kingdom inferior to you will come after you. And yet it keeps going on and on. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom uh, as strong as iron. And so just as the image of the man in chapter 2 was of kings and kingdoms, so that's what we're talking about here in chapter 7. And the angel here has told us so. And so what we have seen in Daniel so far and we'll see in the coming chapters, is that the visions of the, the, that Daniel has keeps explaining and exploring these kingdoms. Sometimes it's giving a big picture. Sometimes it's dialing into one of those aspects. Sometimes it's dialing into one of those people. Sometimes it's talking about two of those kings. And it just, he keeps painting the picture for us so we get a really in-depth idea of what's going on. And as you will see, as we will go, the Lord is going to continue to point out the various aspects of these kings. Here in Daniel 7, it's focused on the fourth beast, that final beast, that final kingdom. And, but what we just read in verse 17 tells us that these great kingdoms, as powerful as they are, as amazing as they are, as they come after one after another, they're ruling, they're reigning, they're conquering one another, they're devouring leading up to that final kingdom that just basically t- takes over everything. As powerful as they are, verse 18, we need to tuck in our hearts. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. In other words, as powerful and as dominating as everything that we've experienced has happened from the beginning of time until now, Guess who inherits the kingdom? The saints of the Most High. So what's the implication of that truth? Am I a saint of the Most High? Good question. Now that Daniel understands what those kings represent, he has more questions. And by the way, you should always have more questions when you're reading these things. That's what God wants us to do. We read something and we gain an understanding which leads to more understandings and we go to him to find those answers. Amen? Verse 19 says, let's read verse 19 through 22. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which is exceedingly different, which is different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying, that is, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Verse 20, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up from before which three of them had fallen, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Verse 21, And as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancients of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So Daniel recognizes as he's looking at this fourth beast, there's something gnarly about it. It's it's crazy. There's something really significant about it. I want to know what is with this beast because it's emphasized. Verse 19 tells us uh, that it was unlike the rest. We find out from Revelation 13, it gives us a description. We'll go to there in just a minute. But from its terrifying teeth and claws to its ability to destroy everything, to ten horns that were on it, three fell off, and then from it a little horn came out that seemed to be greater than other, and that horn had eyes all over it, and it had a mouth to speak. I mean, just trippy. 
to its ability to conquer the saints until God came. So what's the significance of this? Daniel's wondering. He's greatly troubled by this because the saints are getting slaughtered, right? This is an all-powerful beast. Verse 23, then he said, and as for the fourth beast, speaking to Daniel here, there shall be a fourth what? A kingdom. We just found out that it was, the, the beasts were kings and they're also what? Kingdoms. So as the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And so right away, we see that this beast represents a king and a kingdom, a fourth kingdom. Now, if you remember back in November, when we went over these verses, we know that the lion of the, uh, the lion um, with eagle's wings was King Nebuchadnezzar. And his kingdom of Babylon, the lion described here in Daniel 7, loses its wings and then, and then falls down to the ground, basically, and then finally stands up and is given the mind of a man. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was great. He was powerful. He was mighty. He was, it was like he could go anywhere and do anything. And then because of his pride, God humbled him. He fell for seven years and he was given the mind of an animal. But then at the end of that time, he finally, out of his pride, he was humbled and he looked up to God and said, you alone, you're, you're, you're the king of kings, lord of lords. And he just gave him glory. And then God restored to him the mind of a man and he restored his kingdom. That's what all that pictures there. So the lion is Babylon. But then if you remember, the Babylonians were conquered. You remember this from Daniel chapter 5. In, in one night, the Medo-Persians came in under Darius and they took over that kingdom. This is the bear the Medo-Persian Empire, bigger on one side than the other. The Persian Empire had more power than the Medo, the Medo side of that thing. They came in and they conquered. They had much flesh in their teeth. But we remember the Medo-Persian Empire was taken over by the Greeks, that third beast, the picture of a leopard, who represents, as we will know next week as we get into chapter 8, Alexander the Great, who just went through everything like a knife through butter. And he died young, I think at 33, Gary, is that right? <laughs> 33 years old, historian, elder historian, love it. Um, always fact check right there. He went through and he conquered everything quickly. He died of some disease in Babylon and just was sad that he didn't have anywhere else to conquer. And what happened is he had, what's with the four heads? Well, he died young and his kingdom was divided among four generals. And so you see all this laid out in advance, but then what happens after that as the Greeks did their thing, we find out that the fourth beast comes along, and that's Rome, the iron teeth of Rome. We had the iron legions of Rome that just went through and decimated the whole world and took it over. For, and they, I think Rome finally broke up the band in like the late 1400s or something, 1,200, 1200s. I, I don't know. But they divide, even though they divided into east and to west, they kept going for a long time. And basically, they ruled for over 1,000 years. What power. And, and as that kind of disintegrated towards the end, we see that iron and clay mixed, where we are all a part of that, at least in the Western world, we're all a part of that iron and clay mixed, so to speak. We've got you know, whatever form of Christianity was there and the power structure, the legal structure, all that stuff is all kind of here. But the fourth beast comes along and it's distinct from all the other beasts and it, it has teeth of iron and claws of bronze destroying everything. So that's what Rome did. But it also says having ten horns with a distinct little horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that even conquered the saints. So the fourth beast here is Rome. And yet, also a future Rome. And we get that from the ten toes because there is a revival of some sorts that comes out of Rome. Rome came with their legions. They crushed everything, but eventually they went into the history books. Rome is a dominating power, but there's something unique about this fourth beast. It has ten horns. At verse 24, everybody, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings, kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. And so what we're seeing here is that out of Rome, there's going to be ten kings, so ten kingdoms that somehow come out of the former Rome or whatever this iron beast was. 
that shall arise. And there's going to be a revived tin federation conglomeration there, so to speak. Many people pointed to the reemergence of the EU and other things like that. I don't know. I don't know. But it is interesting how all these nations in that area are starting to come together. But there's going to be some form of ten kingdoms that come out of that. Ten horns are significant because out of them another horn is coming. A little horn. Another king. Who shall arise after them who will put three of those kings down. So there's going to be a power struggle within them. Leaders like to struggle for power. Three will be taken out. One will arise. He will be victorious. How will this king and his kingdom be different? This king arises and he gains power and dominion and control and it goes global. How is he going to be different? Flip over to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, last book in the Bible. 13th chapter. We're going to get a little more in-depth look at the fourth beast here. This is the Apostle John, similar to Daniel. It's been given Revelation. He was given a vision concerning the end as well. That's what the book of Revelation is. And yet, John was given more understanding than Daniel. Daniel was given limited understanding. The things he had came to a certain point. They were sealed, as we will read later on in the book of Daniel. But now they're unsealed, and John has that revelation. Revelation 13, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. That is the world, right? That is out of the nations, just like in Daniel. With what? Ten horns and seven heads, new information there, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's. What, do we, what does that put into your head? Wait a second, those are the other beasts. This is kind of like all those beasts put together. Yep. And so here John gives us a more in-depth description of the final beast in that final phase with the final kingdom. What we see is this beast is an amalgamation of all of these different uh, previous kings and kingdoms. This final kingdom is kind of like all those kingdoms rolled into one. All their rebellion, all their false religion, all of their idolatry, all of their aspirations that come against God are rolled into one final kingdom, one final leader. And we see this by all the various parts of the previous beast found in this beast. It's kind of like the DNA of all the other beasts are, are somehow in this one, this final version, this final king. And this beast, this final kingdom has ten horns with seven heads and ten crowns on those ten horns. We already know the horns represent the ten kings. We just saw that in Daniel 7, right? 24. Daniel 7, 24. It's out of these ten kingdoms that the final king arises. In the seven heads, which we're not going to get into this morning, uh, they represent the seven successive kingdoms. And so we have information. It's more than, it's more than four. The four are significant. But there's, you know, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, uh, Rome, and then Rome too. That's kind of all the ones put together represented by the seven heads and that final empire there being that seventh head. And so this beast, this final king of this kingdom is a hybrid of evil. Verse 2 of Revelation 13 says, and it is to, uh, and to it, that is the beast, the dragon, that is Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. And so the reason this final leader is so distinct from all the others is that this final leader is going to be satanically empowered. Now, there is a false perception of Satan on this earth. Some people think that he is the opposite of God in power. He is not. God is in control. Satan serves God's purposes, believe it or not. I don't want to get into that whole discussion, but Satan is not in hell waiting for everybody to go, come on and let's party. No, hell was created for Satan and his demons. He doesn't want anything to do with it. His demons, when they're confronted by Jesus, they cried out, 
you know, son of, son of, what did they call him, son of God, you know, don't put us into the abyss before it's time. Don't, don't, we know what's coming. Don't do it yet. And so he lets them go into pigs and other situations, right? So Jesus is, it, the, the, God is in charge, amen? Satan is a powerful, powerful being. He was probably one of the archangels that fell. Archangels are powerful. And those who fell with him are in cahoots. I don't know if they're all ordered or not, but it seems like they are these days in their influence and all that type of stuff. But they have power, great power, angelic power. And if you see what angels do in scriptures, mailroom angels are impressive, let alone archangels. Satan has power and authority. Remember when Jesus was tempted, came to Satan, right? Where Satan came to him and started tempting him. And one of the temptation was, hey, Jesus, bow down and worship me. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world or whatever it was. He says, I'll give you all this if you bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't dispute the kingdoms of the world being his. They were under his power, his sway, his control. Remember, he is the God of this age. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who is at work and the sons of disobedience. Satan, although you cannot see him, he is influencing and, and controlling what is going on right here, right now in this world. Very powerful. Extremely powerful. And what he is going to do is he is going to supernaturally embody and power this final leader. He's going to give him his authority, his rule, his control. He is going to empower this person, and they are going to be a leader like we have never seen before. You think how quickly we flock to political leaders now in, their, in, in all their weaknesses, right? You can't wait to see what's going to happen when this guy gets on the scene. Remember, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of the sage. He is the father of lies. And all that power, all that influence is going to be manifested in this man who will rise up. And this man is the person we call, we commonly call the Antichrist. That's who he is. So similarly, just as Jesus had power and authority and all these things from the Father to accomplish the Father's will, so conversely, the Antichrist will fulfill his will of his father, the devil. It's kind of like a false trinity. I'm not saying they are the equal opposites. I'm not. I'm just saying in the similar counterfeit fashion, Satan will seek to mimic what God has done as he always is trying to usurp the true God. So you have a supernaturally empowered person, and then he has a false prophet next to him who is working signs and wonders, and miracles, and people are just taken with this. And for the sake of time, still in Revelation 13, skip down to verse 5, where it says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. John says the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. People are already just flat out doing this. Opening our mouth to utter blasphemies against God, against his name, against his dwelling and those who dwell there. And so the Antichrist comes out of a of revived Rome and he comes to power taking out three of his rivals and is supernaturally empowered as a world leader by Satan. And his coming on the world begins a period in time called the great, well, called the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period. The last seven years before Christ comes back, according to what I, what I understand of Scripture here. And by the way, a lot of good people see these things differently. So I just want to give room for that. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm teaching what I believe and understand of the Scriptures. and love to have a dialogue with you on this. But that the beginning of this seven-year period, which is described in Revelation 6 through 19, at the beginning of this time, I believe that the Scriptures teach that the true church is taken out. It's raptured. 
I think you look at different places in, in Thessalonians and other places and, and you kind of come to that conclusion. And God's attention then turns back to the nation of Israel at that time. And we're going to read about that in Daniel chapter 9. So if you have a varying opinion, stick around for that. Um, so you can kind of understand where that comes from. Daniel chapter 9, talking about God's attention going back onto Israel during this seven-year period of that time called the tribulation. The Antichrist is deceiving the nations. He's rising to power. And, but something happens right in the middle of that 42 months. Right in the middle of that seven-year period, he does something that just absolutely ushers in the end. At the three-and-a-half-year mark, we'll read about it later in Daniel, he does something called the abomination that causes desolation. Somehow, he goes to where the Holy of Holies is, so there must be a, a rebuilt Jerusalem temple by that time. And by the way, I've been to Israel. There are Jews who are ready to build that temple. They've got the cornerstone. They've got the priesthood all figured out. They've got all the stuff figured out. They've, it's all there. It's called the Temple Mount Faithful. It's pretty wild to see. They've got the menorah. I don't know about the ark. I didn't really figure that out. <laughs> There's some other interesting things happen in Ethiopia, but I won't get into all that right now. That's neither here nor there. But he walks into this temple and he declares himself to be God. And he commands that everybody will worship his image. I don't understand what that is. I don't understand what that means. But I know what it triggers. It triggers the wrath of God on the world. God says, that's it. And for the last three and a half years of that seven-year seven period, it's called the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, where God's wrath is poured out on the earth in apocalyptic ways. Oceans are dying. Stars are falling. People are, there's just total panic. And you got to read, and it's progressive. It keeps coming in waves that just don't stop. And so he sets himself up in the Holy of Holies at that point in Jerusalem. And he declares himself to be God, the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus spoke of it. Daniel spoke of it. And this triggers that great tribulation where we see those successive judgments of God, the bull judgments and all this type of stuff in Revelation. And that culminates to the return of Christ. And you figure when God's wrath is being poured out, people would change. But it doesn't. They get worse and more hardened and hard-hearted. That's the point. It's at that point that verse 7 here in Revelation 13 says, Also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, uh, a book of the Lamb who was slain. And so total world domination and massive persecution on anyone who identifies with Jesus Christ. In verse, 20, in verse 26, back in chapter 7, go back to Daniel in chapter 7. That's exactly what he's saying in Daniel. Daniel 7, verse 26. He says, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And so during this three-and-a-half-year tribulation, God will once again work through the Jews. There's going to be 144,000 Jews that are uh, sealed, and you can't get around it. They are Jews. It lays them by tribe, all this stuff. They're Jews. God's working through the Jews again. They have a sign on them. As they're sealed. They preach the gospel, and they all die. They're all killed. They're all beheaded, or whatever it is there. The beast slaughters them, and anyone who believes is slaughtered. That's what's going on. You lose your life. You know, a lot of us think, hey, you know, I'll lose, I'll lose my life for the Lord. I love him. Well, are you losing your life right now for him? You know, that's the question we have. Today, are we living for him as if that? You know, are we, are we living for the Lord now? But the Antichrist is going to wear them out, meaning not that they're going to lose their faith. They're going to be killed. And it says here, 
And also in the end of verse 20, 26, that during that time, that he shall think to change the times and the laws. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, his power will be so great that this leader will think to change the times and laws. He's going to rewrite history to his own liking, and he is going to change the law on the books to go along with his agenda, and it's going to be that way for three and a half years. And this is where we see the mark of the beast come in. The mark of the beast comes in where laws are rewritten, and all the markets will be tied to the worship of the beast. And without this mark, no one will be able to buy or sell. I think two years ago, we would have wondered how that would have happened. It's interesting that we read these things and we wonder how that might come about, you know? And we say, surely won't people won't stand for this. One, you're going to die if you don't. Number two, he's very charismatic, satanically empowered. Number three, the laws will be enforced. Remember, we have to remember that he will be like Rome. He's got iron teeth. He's going to chew up everything and everyone, especially the church or the church, those who follow the Lord. He will be empowered by Satan. He will be a deceiver, and there will be false prophet alongside him working miracles. And Revelation 13 says that the people will say of him, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And just before that, it talks about him possibly dying and then coming back to life. So a false resurrection or some kind of trickery or who knows what's going on there. But people are just going, wow. And the systems of this world will conform to him. And everyone will take his mark, which is needed to buy and sell. And if you don't, you will die. And if you do... Your name is not written in the book of life, it says. This year, we've seen with our own eyes the world's mindset and the systems being put in place for all that's to come about. That unless you comply, unless you do what you're supposed to do, you're not going to be able to engage in commerce, you're not going to be able to worship, and you're not going to have social interactions. I'm not saying we are in that time, but the systems are being set. Someone said it's a dry run. And so the wheels are getting greased. The system is getting the kinks worked out, so to speak. Now, obviously, we are not in the tribulation period. This is not that. Make the distinction. Don't jump. But you can see where the reality of this, the spirit of it within the people, the spirit of it within government, the spirit of it within the world is saying, we're getting ready for this. A system, a world willing to follow like sheep in the name of peace and safety, and that's what he's going to be proclaiming. Peace and safety, but sudden destruction comes upon them. We have been conditioned to comply. I'm not saying we shouldn't submit to the government. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus is pretty clear about that in a lot of things, but we have to be wise in this, and we have to know what's going on and where the lines are that we will not cross. We will worship. We will gather, we will sing to the Lord, we will fellowship, we will love one another deeply from the heart. This is the church, and we'll be persecuted for it. It's okay. It's okay. We're not going to be defiant. We're going to love people. We're not going to be rude about what we do. If we walk into a store and they say, put on a mask, what are we going to do? Love one another. Put on a mask. If you're with someone who wants to have a wear a mask, put on a mask. If someone who doesn't, just don't. Just do what is good and right before the Lord. If, if the centurion says to go, go one mile with you, go two. So there's a lot of these things that need to be played out, and I can't get to them all right now, but we do see deep division about these things in the body of Christ right now. We need to keep the big picture in mind, both of what's coming and what God calls us to right now in the meantime in our suffering to trust that he's going to come and make things all things right. And I'm still working through these things, everybody. Are you working through them? Don't have it all figured out. This has been a trying year. Thank you for your grace.
And though, uh, I, although I believe the church will be out of here, if it's not, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready to suffer, ready to follow the Lord, ready to lose your lives. That begins with today. You can only imagine the influence of a satanically empowered leader. If we are so easily pulled and, and prodded and pushed and moved in this time, what in the world do you think is going to happen in that time? You know, some people say that the great the apostasy is the catching up, maybe, but the word is the falling away. Could be translated both, but I think there that Jesus says, well, we see in, in Timothy's teachings in the last times, there's going to be lovers of self. And it goes on a big list. That's the thing is everybody loves themselves. They're doing what's best for themselves. They aren't loving the Lord. And these are the times that reveal who we are. You know, and COVID has done it more than anything. I mean, how many of you have struggled with selfishness during this time? You know, it started out like, well, this is nice. I was created to be alone. Let's have fun. <laughs> you know, and then you realize, oh, I actually need people. And then you struggle with all the little, dyna- you know, it's, it's a struggle, but there's a lot of selfishness going on there. And the whole thing is like, let's follow the Lord. Let's seek Him. Let's love one another. Let's be... Let's not forsake the gathering of the church, but let's be together more and more as you see the day approaching. Amen. More love, more chipping off those rough edges that Pastor Matt has and everybody else. I want to be like the ten virgins, the ones who actually had the licks lit and were ready when the Lord came. I don't want to be the one stumbling around going, oh, yeah, can I borrow your oil? I want to be busy about the king's work, loving you, loving God, and want to love one another. And just to clarify, our, our, our church's mission statement is to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. There is no higher call. You do what the king says. And to, to love God is to obey him. And what is this command that you love one another as I have loved you? And that is what we're about. And I, although I do believe the church will be out here, out of here, but if we aren't, be ready. All, be ready now. Because this leader will come on the scene and deceive the masses, and miracles will be there, and people will be drawn to his power and charisma and all these things, and he will be crying peace and safety, but the times of God's wrath are going to be poured out in the church and that last three and a half times were poured out upon the world and so just as we never thought we would be where we are today, those people will never thought they would be where they are there. It's coming. The day is coming. The king of this world is going to rise up. But Daniel tells, uh, but the angel tells Daniel here in verse 26 of chapter 7 of Daniel, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion, that is the beast, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. In other words, forever and ever. We read in Revelation how he's taken, he's thrown into the lake of fire, and he burns forever and ever and ever and ever. And those who follow the beast and Satan are placed there forever and ever and ever and ever. This is serious stuff. We're going to come back to the Antichrist in future messages because Daniel wraps back around to it, guys. But Daniel is told that even the rule of the beast will end. God will sit in judgment. And that is a reminder to us all that God is on his throne and his, that this will all end when he says it's time. Daniel 2 gave us the vision of a stone that was made without hands coming and hitting the foot of that image, which represents all the kingdoms. And then that stone became a mountain and it never stopped. That's the kingdom. Christ is coming back. He's going to come and hit and the world will melt, the, le- the nations will fall, and he will arise. First here on the earth, I believe, for a thousand years, and then his eternal kingdom. But the Lord is coming back, first for his church, and then seven years later to rule and reign. The end of Revelation 19, through 11 through 21, gives us into insight into uh, this time 
when the Lord comes and takes it back. I want to finish by reading this with the 11, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. The end of the seven-year tribulation period at his coming, it reads this. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Church, the first time he came on a donkey for peace. The second time, he's coming on a horse, a war horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes what? War. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, will following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the Jesus, the Lord Jesus is in view here with his armies of heaven. And he's coming to take back the dominion of Satan, which he won on the cross. He's coming to take it back physically. In verse 17, and then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They're going to try to stop the Lord from coming. All the powers of Satan, all the kingdoms of men wrapped into one with all of our military might and everything we've got trying to stop this from happening. And what does the next verse say, verse 20? Just a standing. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophets were who, who, false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We read a thousand years later after Jesus' reign on earth that Satan is finally thrown into that same fire, the lake of fire, where the false prophet and the beast were. They'd still been. Verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Listen, How's Jesus going to take out everything? What is he going to do? Is it going to be a big, long Lord of the Rings struggle? He's going to show up and he's going to speak the sword that comes from his mouth and it will be done. That's all he has to do because he is the word. The word that put this world into existence and the word that will take it out by his word. By his word, we're saved. By his word, our promises, his promises to us are fulfilled. By his word, he's going to come set things straight in this world. The Lord Jesus is coming back, all-powerful, the mighty son of God, puts an end to the beast, captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Back to Daniel, verse 7, 28, 27 through 28. Actually, this is the ending. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of heaven, uh, of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be a, what? An everlasting kingdom. The kingdom of men is what? Temporary. An everlasting kingdom given to us. And all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. That's it. It's all coming to that moment. Where are you now with the Lord? It came the first time to die on behalf of these enemies, that anyone who would repent and would believe would have everlasting life. Freely he came to give. The second time he's coming, or the moment your your heart stops, then comes the judgment. And and. And Daniel ends here by saying, And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. 
and my color changed, meaning his face lost its complexion. He says, but I kept the matter in my heart. You know, perhaps you're hearing some of this for the first time right now, and you are just going, what in the world is all this? Like, this is crazy. This is coming. And the reason why we know it's coming is because he came the first time, just as was prophesied in the Old Testament, just as he said. And when he left, he said, I'm coming back. And everybody mocks him, oh, where's your God? Where's he coming back? The reason why he isn't coming back, Peter tells us so quickly, is because God desires that what? All should repent. He wants to have mercy. That's why he's long-suffering and patient. He's merciful. Some of you need to get right with the Lord. I do too. Let it be today. Today, God is a God of mercy. Amen? He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of a bazillion chances. Today's the day. Church, we have a mission to live out the gospel and to proclaim this. Now, the world will reject it. Expect it. That's what the, that's what the Lord says. Listen, most of these people are going to go, yeah, whatever. They're going to take the mark of the beast. going to do their thing. But it's to the subjects of the Most High, the ones who believed upon Jesus, who are going to receive the eternal kingdom. Well, when do you receive the kingdom? Right now. <laughs> the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. Believe, repent, and he makes you new. And his kingdom comes in your heart. And then he manifests it physically. What we just read here, he's going to physically manifest that kingdom. It's going to be awesome. But there's no time to day like today to start digging into the word of God so that you might know the God of the word. Amen. We're here to answer your questions. We want to pray for you. Um, we realize there's different varying opinions about some of this. But listen, the bottom line is let the Lord Jesus reign in his church right now. Amen. And who's the church? I am. We are. Right? Amen. I find it interesting that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, my Father which art in heaven. What did he say? Our Father. It's an us. Blood-bought, brought into the body of Christ so that we might love one another in these times that we face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glimpse into your plan. And God, while we're in the midst of it, we're struggling with so much here right now. But it's just refreshing to look and to see that you have got the plan and it's unfolding just as you said. And so, Lord, you've placed us here not to be whiners or complainers and disruptors, but to be followers of Jesus in the midst of a perverse generation. Let us be that. Forgive us for our unfaithfulness. Strengthen us in our weakness, God, and cause us to shine for you in love and in good works. Be glorified, Father. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.